When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, there'll be no Jake Paul here today, ladies and gentlemen. How exciting does that sound? Yes, welcome to MK Morning Combat Extra Credit. This is the podcast within the podcast that I do to make sure we get to all of the MMA action that we sometimes miss on the regular MK. My name is Luke Thomas. Of course, I am one half of the hosting duo from regular Morning Combat with Brian Campbell. But uh, yeah, we got a lot to get to today. So today... We're going to get to UFC Fight Night Lewis versus Dawkins, uh, UFC Vegas 45, UFC on ESPN Plus 57, UFC Fight Night 199. These are all the exact same event. Uh, as you can see below on the screen, give us a follow on various social media channels. If you're watching this on YouTube, thumbs up on the video, hit subscribe. If you're listening on a podcast, whatever platform that may be, please leave us a nice review. Uh, as I mentioned, we will not be talking about Jake Paul here today. In fact, I don't even want to say that name anymore. Let's talk about some of the top MMA fighters in the world. So here is the card for Saturday. This is from top to bottom, as you can see. We're going to focus in on the five that have been highlighted. We'll go Bilal Muhammad versus Stephen Thompson. We'll go Amanda Lemos taking on Angela Hill. Ricky Simone versus Rafael Sunsau. The main card opener, Cub Swanson taking on Darren Elkins. And then all the way down... On the prelim card, we'll go with Raquel Pennington versus Macy Chiasson. I'll do a couple of very quick honorable mentions for some of the other ones on this card. Yeah? All right. Well, with that in mind, let's begin. All right. First up, your um, well, your co-main, the first fight I want to talk about, Bilal Muhammad defeats Stephen Thompson. I mean, listen to these scores. 30-25, 30-26, and then 30-26. Let me see the... Uh, if I can, let me see the fight metric numbers for this. Um, that is, this was easily the performance of his career. Now, let me say something about all of these fights that I haven't quite said yet. That I've said this before many times, but it's worth really going back. You're going to see this in some of the fights that I picked. You might liked, you might have liked other fights on the card. For example, I'm imagining some of you are probably a little bit disappointed we're not getting to the Charles Jordan fight. Uh, Jordan, a fight here on this um, today's podcast, episode 11 of the uh, MK Extra Credit. I'll talk about it a little bit honorable mention, but one thing I wanted to show, not in all five of the fights that I picked, but in some of them, it's obvious, but it just it's worth saying one more time. I cannot overstate how much you have to consider what a role the fence plays in mixed martial arts, not merely as a place to push someone up against for a takedown, as a place to potentially be avoided, right? So that will affect the way people circle or defend takedowns in striking once they get behind the black line, which I'll show you here in just a second. And then near the fence line, their behavior changes because now their options are limited. They can't have the same kind of mobility. Now they become significantly different fighters. They become significantly different fights. There's almost two fights in, in some of these MMA fights like this. There's the fight that takes place closer to the center of the cage and then there's the fight that takes place along or close to the fence line and they're just dramatically different now this fight probably not the very best example considering in the third round for example that 
Bilal Muhammad was able to score a takedown in open space and actually seal the fight itself. But if you look at the numbers, I mean, these are the worst numbers maybe for Wonder Boy ever. Um, they're terrible. He landed only 19 of 32 significant strikes. Is that the lowest for Wonder Boy ever in a fight? Let's see, he landed 19 in this fight, 19 in the Gilbert Burns fight, so identical. But think about this. He landed 171 in the fight with Jeff Neal. He landed 138 in the fight with Vicente Luque, 47 uh, in the fight with Pettis, uh, with Till, 30. And that fight was terrible. That was, of course, over five rounds, so maybe that's a little about the same, actually. Um, but you get the idea. Really, really low volume here. I'm looking at some of my notes. I normally don't make notes. So I'm going to start for this podcast now if I can. Um, you know what was amazing to me was a couple things. One, the the ability for Bilal. I mean, this is a great win by Bilal Muhammad. So let's state that outright. Bilal Muhammad looked really good here. Uh, obviously, he didn't finish Wonder Boy. There are some criticisms if you wanted to make them. Some, no fighter is perfect. Um, the choke was never all that close in the first round, and the ground and pound was good but not great. Um, but the overall ground and pound effort with the takedowns and how he managed the fight was exceptional, truly exceptional. This was the best performance of Bilal Muhammad's career against the very toughest test. I'd argue that he has had to this point, and he looked fantastic. Um, just totally in command. I have candidly maybe slept on him a little bit, um, and this was a bit of a wake-up call for me. Now, what did I notice from Muhammad that I thought was so good? I thought the level changing was quick, and he could cover distance with it, right? I mean, yes, sometimes he set it up with strikes. Sometimes it was in close range. Sometimes, and sometimes he would get under the punches of wonder boy then chase him along the fence line but a lot of times man he's having to cover a fair amount of distance and he did it and here's what was so interesting about him this is not true every time but if you look at the takedowns and by the way i think he had an incredible uh takedown run against wonder boy seven takedowns of nine 77 extremely high by Bilal muhammad did you notice how many involved picking wonder boy off of his feet and taking him to an empty plane Right, so let's talk about that for just a second. Picking him up is obvious, right? Lifting him off of his feet and then taking him to an empty plane, meaning taking him to a space behind the line of his back, right? If you were going from shoulder to shoulder, the line that his back occupies, what's behind him? What is there open space? Call it an open plane because it's usually a little bit more involved when you're talking about tripping and throwing and judo on what foot patterns people are on. But you get the idea. There's negative an open space behind him. A lot of them involve picking him up and then turning him either to turn his hips over or to just move him into a, a space where there's negative space behind him. And that was mostly how he got it done. Like what, contrast that, for example, with trips. Contrast that with, say, single leg where you're running the pipe. Contrast that with, you know, there was, I think, one double leg scoop a little bit later because it fit into a larger part of his game where he would go for these leg rides below Muhammad, particularly on that left side, a little Hamzat Chumayev style. Um, but in general, it was a lot of lifting Wonder Boy off of his feet. I, I have, I'd have to go back and look at the tape, but I think Bilal Muhammad, who specializes in you know high crotch lifts and other kinds of, of takedowns where you're lifting someone off of their feet, um, it came in handy here. That appeared to be a real weakness of Thompson. He had decent defense if he could down block properly with space behind him or if you know the takedown didn't really involve elevation. But that elevation and the, the turning of it um, I mean, if you think about it, that's how a sweep works in mixed martial arts or jujitsu, right? If I want to sweep someone, I have to lift them off of their base. 
I have to block a side and then turn them to that open space if necessary. You would see underhooks, and there were times where he would grab out the feet so that you would tell that Thompson couldn't post so he could complete the, the hips turning over. Really good work from Bilal Muhammad. I love the I love the use of the lifting of the takedowns. I love the use of the negative space behind him. He even got the back for a little bit in that first round. Couldn't do much with it, but he did get it. There was a Kimura attempt in the second. It, I didn't mind the Kimura attempt because if you're Bilal Muhammad, why not? But it, you knew it wasn't really going to go anywhere. He would have to have been like very, very long and lanky to get that takedown, or excuse me, to get that Kimura from half guard. I can do it depending on the size of my opponent, but I'm very tall. I have long arms, so that is a thing that's possible. He was the shorter and the and the less rangier of the two, so that's going to be hard to do. Then he moved to side, which is better. It's still going to be hard unless you can step over the head, which he really couldn't have done there very well. It just I'm not going to say he was stalling, but it wasn't a path to anywhere. But it kept certainly Wonder Boy on the back foot, metaphorically speaking, and was a nice way to control the round and then win it. And then in the third you know, he was able to turn the corner on the takedowns enough to sort of spin Wonder Boy in a completed circle. It's just good work. It's good wrestling. It's a good read on what kind of takedowns had to get done. Ground and pound was good. Again, not great, but good. Threats for submission weren't really there. But, you know, you start imagining you, he starts mixing in those, you know, and, and not just having overwhelming control, which is pretty good. A, he'll have to work less. And B, it will make all the other parts of his game even that much more dangerous. It's solid, solid stuff there from Bilal Muhammad. He should be very proud of himself, and then I'm sure that he is. It's good work by him. If we go to the next fight, Amanda Limos. I'm told, by the way, depending on your accent in Portuguese or Brazilian Portuguese, it's Limos or Limos. It doesn't necessarily have to be Limos, but I don't speak Portuguese, so I can only tell you what people tell me. Uh, Amanda Lemos taking on Angela Hill. Now, I scored this fight for Hill, but I recognize... That a scorecard for Lemos 29-28 is acceptable. First round, of course, where she drops Angela Hill. And then in the third round, maybe as well. Second round, I don't see how it's possible to give her that round. And then on top of it, one of the judges had a 30-27. I mean, this is a comically off-the-mark scorecard. But okay, neither here nor there. Good front kick from Lemos in the first round. It drops Angela Hill. But Angela Hill, man, she has great cardio. She is durable. She had good composure. In fact, I would argue that while she lost that round, after she got dropped, she won the rest of that round. Not enough to win the whole thing, but to show great composure, to show overall MMA ability, to show veteran experience, and to show you know the kind of skills obviously she's put together as an offensive fighter. So that was nice to see. Um, she did do some decent work countering Hill in the second, but there was a lot of really gritty clinch work from Angela Hill. Angela Hill was forcing clinching in space and then along the fence line was getting hit a little bit too but i thought was doing the majority of the best work creating space landing the knees turning lamos at times landing shots over the top of the clinch on the clinch breaks a lot of really good work from her there you know she was the one in the second round that was she was dictating what kind of fight this was going to be lamos didn't necessarily take a round off, but she definitely didn't put her stamp on that round like she did in the first and, you know, arguably somewhat the third as well. It was much less missing. So to me, I thought Hill had really kind of regrouped after getting dropped. She did get hit with the kick again in the third, but it didn't have nearly the same effect. Um, Hill hit a nice trip from the back in the third. Did you guys notice that? She got behind her, then kicked out the leg, but as they were going, Lemos kept wrestling and then turned into her. So you could see, I've seen Hill... Um, 
doing some work on Instagram with some various coaches that I follow in the MMA and grappling space. And she has really come a long way. You could see that was just great reaction wrestling from Lamos to get taken down on your feet like that. And then the instant your body touches the ground, you are you are absolutely in motion fighting for your life for that position. She did that not, not just once but twice, but in that particular sense. So it was good to see Hill have this attack where she could pull from behind, kick out the leg, and then Lamos almost sits into her lap a little bit. I think she was trying to go for the back, but she turned into her. And so then they, they, the, the scramble got you know restarted again. There was almost a moment where I think in the third, Angela Hill hits a double, and then again, Lemos kind of uses her leg to kick her through. So what you can say from Angela Hill is she clearly has improved takedowns in terms of what she can identify and what attack she can go for. But maybe you could also argue, while Lemos was surprising with her you know, situational wrestling, a little bit more work in um, sealing the takedown. Once you get to the bottom, controlling it, affirming it, making sure that it counts so that you aren't subject to some of these looser kind of uh, situational wrestling positions, right? I mean, part of it is that Lemos had just great tactical reads. And then part of it was the position was maybe a little bit loose, which allowed her to get away with some of the stuff. If you're stuck to them like white on rice, even if they want to scramble pre proactively, you might be able to cut it off before that can happen. But um, again, it was good to see some of that growth. And then in the third, you know, I can see how some might think that Lemos did slightly more damaging strikes. I have to look at their numbers to see what they were overall in terms of numerically where they were on this. Man, they were right near each other. 50 strikes to Amanda Lemos, 48 to uh, Angela Hill. They were right on top of each other. Hill landing one of seven takedowns in that third. Yeah, I mean, they're right there with it. Amanda Lemos, 18. Angela Hill, 17. Um, yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, there was just no other way, uh, to do it. I, th the one issue that I think, uh, Angela Hill keeps running into is her cardio is good. Her reads are good. Her overall growth has been phenomenal to see. She doesn't have like a, um, a, an ace in the hole, like an uppercut kind of punch that not only lands a lot, but drops opposition or, you know, some kind of giga kick or, you know, I mean, it's almost sounds like pro wrestling, like with a special move, with a special move. I don't mean it to be that, but I just mean to say when she, she makes a fair amount of contact with her peers, in this case, numerically almost identical. And yet it just looks like Lemos lands with a little bit more authority. And of course, you could just say, well, Lemos just might have the greater punching power of the two. In fact, Lemos identifies herself as a striker first. Fine. But it just seems to be a bit of a consistent theme in Hill's career that, uh, not, hard, not necessarily like a listen. A lot of times she's off balance or on the move or whatever. There was a couple. There was a there was a right hand she landed on Lemos in either the first or the second that wobbled her a little bit and certainly knocked her off balance. I mean, it's, it's not like she can't crack, but it may be some alterations to the way she's striking or something else that can give her just a little bit more authority on them, so that she doesn't have to do as much work. Again, easier said than done. I am not her coach. I'm not in a position to sort of fix these things. But it just looks to me like if you see something over and over and over again where someone can land and it does damage, but maybe the opponent can kind of weather it and, and match it and exceed it in certain cases, there might be a call to sort of say, what are some other weapons we can have that have a little bit more of a lights out kind of property to them? Again, significantly easier said than done because Hill's got a lot of other great things. She has a game that's still building, which means there's still some upside. She's fast. She's in shape. Um, she's physically, I think, pretty strong for the weight class. 
uh, and can strike well, like ha- puts good combinations together. Like there's a lot she does really, really well. But Sting opponents consistently is not necessarily one of them. And so it may have cost her here just a little bit, although I grant that one scorecard. I mean, you know, she had no chance of winning the fight as long as that judge was there. Uh, Okay, so next on the line, we go down to a fight I wanted to put on here because I thought it was very interesting. Ricky Simone taking on Rafael Sunsau. One of the problems in this fight was Asuncao just not nearly active enough. Let me pull up his numbers here as well. But I was like, dude, you got to do a lot more than you're doing. Of course, he's coming off of that terrible loss to um, a Sunsau to Cody Garbrandt. And then before that, Sandhagen. And then before that, Marais. So this is his fourth loss in a row. That might be it for him here, I think, at age 38 or 39, whatever he is. But um, Ricky Simone, I will tell you what blew me away here. By the way, a Sunsau's numbers, seven of 25 strikes he landed in the course of a round. Uh, or round two, excuse me. Uh, the official time was uh, 2.14 of the second. Uh, not not hardly any offense from uh, Sun Sao. And you could say Simone is partly responsible for that for what he was doing, which is true, no doubt about it. Um, but that's still way too little, way too little. It's going to be a hard fight to win if you can only get off seven punches in a round and a half, or seven strikes anyway. Some of those are just leg kicks too. Um. So what can we say about overall the the um, the fight between Simone and Asuncao? Aside from Asuncao not doing enough, Simone has a phenomenal jab. The jab appears to be key to everything he does, certainly in this fight. Now, he does a lot of different things. He had good takedowns, and he mixes in uh, other phases of the game as an overall development. But what I mean to say is his jab is very interesting. He double jabbed into a level change for a takedown once. He double jabbed into a uh, to elicit a punch from a sunset, which he then slipped and then drove a body shot to um, the jabbing and the slipping both work together. But here's what I will say. The boxing game of Ricky Simone really caught my attention in this game. I always knew he had great cardio. Uh, not the biggest fan of his haircut, but, you know, we'll we'll say nice things about him here today. I always knew he had great cardio. You knew he had great resiliency. You knew he had great wrestling. What else is there? If you want to climb the ranks of bantamweight, you got to have I mean, those things are great. But I mean, I think even he would tell you, you got to have a lot more than that to climb the ranks of bantamweight. This is the first time I really saw some great stuff from Ricky Simone. And not to say he didn't do it before. I'm saying I saw just great boxing. As I mentioned, the jab to close the distance, the jab that he was blinding as Sun Sal with it a few times um as he was trying to set up other punches and then you combo that with the slipping because by the way he would slip to the outside sometimes he would slip to the inside to change angles with it so he's jabbing jabbing getting a response before i slipped over here and now i'm going to slip this way and i'm going to use this side to punch to your near side right so then he catches him that way and actually the way he closed the whole thing was i think he caught asunsal completely off guard he he jabs twice, then leans, then throws, and you see that the throw is off of a slip from uh, Simone. It lands on a Sun Sal, and a Sun Sal gets kind of uh, off-balanced with it um, a little bit. No, actually, you know what? Hold on. Let me check my notes here. Yes, so he slips it, right? And then as he's coming up... Um, excuse- Simone slips the punch, throws, it lands. As you see a sort of scrambling kind of uh, Asun Sao uh, pops up, he gets hit on the half beat 
from Simone. So Simone is now slipping, throwing, opponent moves, jabbing again to off-balance him right in between his steps, right there, right in between his steps. And then he goes to load the right hook. I think he was expecting an Asensal to be below him and kind of in motion brings it a little bit higher across himself. Why do I bring all of this up? Because the jab is being used to close distance. The jab is being used to blind an opponent. The jab is being used to elicit a response, a response Excuse me, so he could slip. And then from that slip, which by the way, slipping punches is hard to do. It's not like an automatic skill. It's actually you have to have really good timing and, and reflexes. It's, it's not easy. So he slips at different sides, slips it, creates offense, moves his opponent over, cuts off his timing, and then doubles him up on that on that right side. That is that's just solid work, man. That's just just really, really, really. Uh, well, I think the jab was to the left, the, the right hook behind it. But you know, putting combinations and punches together, he hits him on the right side. You see Asensio fall over, and that's all she wrote, dude. That's you know, that's that's good boxing, man. He was he was moving in V's off of jabs sometimes, single shots, right? So he's coming in at an angle and then leaving at a different one. It makes him totally uh, free from any kind of response from Asensio, dude. That was that was solid. Now. How much of that was based on the wrestling and how much of that is based on the overall game? Like, how would he do in a pure boxing match? I don't know, but we don't have to worry about that. He's not in one. But just from this, just from the jab work, go back and watch the jab of Ricky Simone, how much it enables him to get into range to do things, how much he's able to use it plus his slipping to off balance and then land on his opponent and then his own timing behind that to disrupt and then close the show. Dude, that's good work. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a series of different jabs for different kinds of needs to get inside. I'm going to bait a punch. I'm going to get off of it. I'm going to land. You're going to move. I'm going to cut you off while you move and then land the finishing shot as you're off balance and scrambling. Dude, that's, yeah, that's good work. That's really good work from Ricky Simone. Amazing. Uh, Cub Swanson defeating Darren Elkins. The official time on this is uh, TKO. They give him a spinning wheel kick and punches. I don't even care about that, but 212 of the very first round. Good work from him, Cub uh, Swanson. He had hands low. You could tell right from the bell he's anticipating pressure. And he's using this kind of jagged side-to-side -side motion um, to land and create openings on Elkins. He knew that Elkins was going to be bearing down on him probably a lot in straight lines. So what he had to do was find a way to intercept that pressure and then exit as needed. And that's what you saw. He was by the way, slipping and countering himself because he could see the punches coming. So he's getting inside and bringing a right hand over the top of it, or he's slipping to the outside and stepping with his left. And, you know, he constantly was catching uh, Elkins moving in. The final one was set up where he goes, he was standing orthodox, then kind of goes square, and you see him doing these jagged left-to-right steps. It is when he steps back from the left, he actually sees a punch from and a step forward from uh elkins he then steps on that left i should say what well, actually kind of happens he's kind of going side to side as elkins pressures he moves left that allows him to slip and it loads the left foot for him to just drive a left hand straight up the middle that catches elkins clean not quite the right distance he was actually a little too close but still it was plenty plenty hard and in fact he doesn't just slip step and throw he then brings the right hook behind it and when he brings the right hook behind it, it lands with a ton of authority. In fact, he threw like a left, right, left. The, the final left hand didn't really land. But that left straight right hook, boy, that landed with absolutely all the authority that it needed. And um, it's interesting. He had a perfectly timed outside step into southpaw. And then 
he finishes it off in orthodox, right? So understand what I'm saying. He was orthodox mostly. Then he kind of goes square to do his side-to-side motion as he's anticipating pressure. He gets the punt. He gets the slip, leans back on his left leg, drives with a step to his right as he throws the punch. So as he is stepping, throwing, lands on his right, now his right leg is forward, right? And this is why actually the third punch was a little bit too close because he's not just switching stances. He's stepping forward while switching stances, going side to side. I'm I'm level. I anticipate pressure. I lean left. I step right. Now my right foot is forward. That means I am southpaw while I land the left hand. So I'm landing my strongest punch in my strongest stance. Then he steps forward with his left. Now he's in orthodox stance and then uses that step from right to left to throw that right hook behind and then crash into Elkins. And when he throws the left hand, again, it's a little bit too close. But you get the idea there, dude. The jagged timing, the left, right, the stepping forward, the changing of the stances, the slipping to create offense. Dude, I really like these guys in MMA who slip to create offense. It's hard to do, but the ones who just cover up like this with their hands in front of their face, sometimes you need to do that. Sometimes that's the only thing you can do. Again, one thing is not necessarily wrong or or, or something like that, but you'll see a lot of people rely on that kind of offense, right? Rely on that, or defense, I should say. Lean on it way too much where they don't have any other kind of defense. If I can slip and you're throwing, now I've got a window where you're wide open, and two, you're still close to me. Right, I'm blinded with my hands in front of my face, and you might hit and exit. If I slip, I catch you at a vulnerable moment, and even if I miss, the second one behind it might catch because you're still close to me. It's just a much mixing, slipping in, if you can do it, I think is a better way to catch opponents who are getting better and better about their timing in MMA. Harder to do, but reaps more rewards. So that was really great to see from Cub Swanson and a very tough loss for Darren Elkins. Last but not least, it should go not without being noticed. Raquel Pennington defeating Macy Chiasson. This happened at uh, via submission guillotine choke, almost like a almost like a 10-finger front choke. 307 of the second round. What was interesting about this fight was actually how it was contested at range. What you saw from Pennington was some stance switching, which you know didn't work all that great. But what she was trying to do was blitz her way off of the, some of those foot feints into range. She would kind of be far away and then almost Fred Flintstone her way into those kinds of positions, trying to land a right over the top when she did it. Again, there's more to it than that. That's not the only thing she did. Um, but while she did get a takedown, she asked him at the end of the first, um, and Pennington was starting to get timed on some of those blitzes and even some of the jabs that she was throwing. You saw Jason kind of slipping and throwing her own at the same time. What ended up making the difference for Pennington, because by the way, you know, at 145, she didn't look that big. I mean, remember, this is a featherweight fight, not a bantamweight fight. But um, what ultimately got the difference for her was you see her try to, um, it's interesting. She's having this back and forth with Chiasen. They're close to the fence line, but they're still on the good side, so to speak, of the black line. That's about, you know, a little bit of space from the actual cage itself. That's the warning track is what we call it. What's interesting is you actually see um, exchanging a little bit. But then I would argue two things happened that worked to Raquel Pennington's benefit. One was um, the body kick response that Jason throws. She kind of throws it and then brings it back slowly. 
And in that time, she's now behind the black lines as she resets her feet. So she's closer to the cage. And she does it where she's not very quick about it and doesn't exit very quick. And then you'll see, as a consequence, a consequence, excuse me, Raquel Pennington kind of uh, jagged step her way inside. Well, that what is that going to do? That's going to force Jason to exit. But she kept exiting to her own right side, the left side of Pennington. Well, what does this mean? This means as she's exiting, two things have gone right for Pennington. Remember, we had that kick that Jason threw, and then she kind of brought it back slowly, and she's closer to the fence. So one, both of them are closer to the fence. Two, by virtue of that strike she threw, she now has a slow escape route. So as she's trying to escape, Pennington, who is in the proper stance this time, left hand forward in orthodox, just intersects with her. Remember the time Justin Gaethje was standing in one stance and Edson Barboza tries to circle away? So all that ends up happening is that, and Stipe did this to DC too, he just switches stances so that he can be on, he can close the door into whatever direction Barboza was exiting towards. She does that, but she's only able to do that because she could cheat the steps because of the kick that was thrown and some of the general positioning that Chiesin took on. So by virtue of being backed up and then having a slow exit and the proper stance from uh, Pennington, she closed her off from there. And then once they got closed off, they clinched, and that's where she found um, the guillotine choke thereafter. But I'm just trying to point out, it was cage tactics that got her to a place where she was able to do better offense, cut off an escaping opponent, and then ultimately use some of her, you know, veteran savvy and some of her great submission skills to get it done. But let me just talk about, I mean, just think about what I just brought up. Bilal Muhammad versus Wonderboy, fence played an integral role. Uh, Amanda Lemos versus Angela Hill, less of one, but certainly one. Ricky Simone versus Rafael Sunsau. I mentioned all the things he did. Part of it is he was backed up against the fence and he was not as nimble in some of the ways in which he could move Asunsao, and he got caught. Again, great timing as well from Ricky Simone, but you get the idea. The fence played a role there as well. Cup Swanson versus Darren Elkins, less so, but then Raquel Pennington versus Macy Chieson played a huge role. I realize that the fence is going to play a role no matter what because it is an enclosing space, and people always seem to push out. Right, You push into your opponent. It just naturally has a consequence of ultimately finding its way along the fence line. Like The fact that they end up there is not coincidental. But I just want to talk about not that they, or rather, I want to reinforce the idea, not merely that they end up there by coincidence, but that the fence plays dramatic and differing roles in elite MMA outcomes, whether it assists wrestlers, whether it uh, assists strikers, whether it assists them in an X kind of striking scenario or Y kind of grappling scenario. Um, or for opponents trying to escape along the fence line and what to what extent stance plays a role, it, it features prominently in how outcomes are decided in mixed martial arts. I think that's the point I'm trying to get across. It's been true for a while. It was very true on this card, and it's probably the most true in that Macy Chies and Raquel Pennington fight. Uh, very quickly, uh, two honorable mentions, if I can. The Charles Jordan fight against Andre Ewell. Great work from him, 30-27, excuse me, 3026, 30 27, then 29-27. You could make a case that maybe you will won the first. I don't think that's true, but you know, it got worse for him. I'll put it this way as it went along. And we talked about that on regular MK. Good stuff from him. Justin Taffa becoming the first person to miss weight at heavyweight in the UFC, but he just destroys Harry Hunsucker inside of a minute. Gerald Mearshart now has, I think, most finish. Does he have most? No, obviously that would go to uh, most finishes in the middleweight division via sub. Uh nice work by him as well. Dontel Mays doing some uh, uh, pelvis pump, uh, pumping in his fight with Josh Parisian. And then Jordan Levitt, 
getting a inverted triangle over just a Matt Sales not really paying attention. He scoops the legs and recovers them for position and then lets one of them go and then kind of moves his head into the space and then it just gets wrapped up. I didn't know what that was all about. I mean, I, th I think he just wasn't thinking right. So you get the idea. But um, that's it. That is, oh, you're, you're bonus winners. Uh, five of the night, Lamos and Hill. Performance went to Cub Swanson and then Melissa Gatto. Melissa Gatto getting a win over Sajara Eubanks uh, with a body shot um, in the in the third round of their contest. So all the way, good work. What was your favorite fight on the card? What did you notice? What stood out to you? Thumbs up on the video. Hit subscribe. That's it for me here today, kids. You can see on the lower graphic there, if you're watching on YouTube, all the places you can give us a follow for Morning Combat, for Brian Campbell, and, of course, for me as well. And, uh, yeah, I don't know if we're going to do this one the rest of the year, this podcast. We might. We'll figure something out. But either way, I appreciate you watching. Thumbs up, hit subscribe, and until we meet again, ladies and gentlemen, enjoy the fights.